Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullock, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disasters, teamwork, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullock there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Now, today's topic comes from a book. Longtime listeners and longtime viewers, you know I love to read. I get my hands on everything. And today, we're going to be talking with the author of The Power of Teamwork, How We Can All Work Better Together, by best-selling author, of the night shift, and I have that book on my night on my uh, nightstand as well. Dr. Brian Goldman, Brian, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Alex. It's an honor having you here. As I say, I've got night shift. I, I when I first got your the power of teamwork book, I didn't realize it was the same person. <laughs> so, congratulations on both both books, especially the power of teamwork. That's your latest one. Now. Thanks. I know I've uh, looked up your biography and we've sent some emails back and forth. So I know a little bit about you, but considering I have uh, listeners and viewers literally around the globe, could you take a moment or two and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, I am an emergency physician at Sinai Health System in Toronto. I've been there for quite a long time. Uh, I became an emergency physician uh, in the 1980s, and I had even back then a love of writing. I wrote for newspapers and eventually, you know, magazines, uh, books, uh, radio, television. Uh, I I continue to host uh, two radio shows uh, at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and the two careers were in parallel: writing, broadcasting on the one side, and 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 medicine, emergency medicine on the other side. I became an emergency physician in part because it gave me the time to write, to interview people and write. Uh, I, I dabbled a bit in fiction, but it was mostly nonfiction. Um, and uh, I've written four books. The, the latest is The Power of Teamwork. Previously, I wrote a book about empathy called The Power of Kindness. I wrote a book about the uh, coded language that doctors use in, in, in hospitals, in medical culture, and what that says about medical culture. And then The Night Shift, which is a book uh, that is about 24 hours in, in the life of, or, or a night shift in the life of one emergency physician, that's me, uh, and, and used it as an exploration, not only of my own career, a bit of a memoir, but also an examination of, of medical culture. So medical culture is, has been my thing. You know, I've, I've been very interested in explaining to the world how doctors think and, you know, other healthcare providers, paramedics, nurses, etc. But I know the most about about physicians and in particular emergency physicians. And and in part, it was because I wanted the world to understand that the people who take care of them when they're ill are human beings. They have likes and dislikes and hopes and dreams and, and, and stuff that makes them really, really frustrated. And I I just thought the world was ready to hear to hear those stories and not just um, a kind of an, an overemphasis on the heroism of, of health professionals as if as if they aren't fully actualized human beings. And and so that's been my career since 2007. I've hosted White Coat Black Art, which is a show about medical culture and about the experience of patients in the culture of modern medicine. And uh, more recently, over the last three years, almost at, at the beginning of the pandemic, just before the pandemic, I started hosting a show, a podcast called The Dose, which is basically uh, 20 minutes every week about some piece of medical information, might be a topic about a disease. You know, for a lot of the pandemic, it was about the pandemic, uh, but it was all news you can use. So it's not about medical culture, it's medical news you can use. And, and you know, for instance, uh, we've done shows recently about breathing 
about uh, you know how much salt is too much salt and and do people over the age of 50 or 60 have to start increasing the protein in their diet and taking protein supplements. Uh, we're going to be doing a show on fatty liver uh, in, in the next few weeks because a lot of people find out from their doctors through an ultrasound that they've got fatty liver and they have no idea what it means. It's not mm. a niche diagnosis. It's becoming incredibly common. Well, welcome to the show. And before we start talking about the book, I want to say thank you to uh, yourself and all your colleagues for all the work you did through the pandemic and the work you've done throughout history. You know, fantastic people like yourself and nurses and doctors of all all kinds saved my life when I was a, a, a young one. So I've always had the utmost respect for people in the field. So thank you very much. And I'm really honored to have you here. That's kind. That's kind of you to say. Now, let's jump into the book, The Power of Teamwork. You start off the book with a really touching story that sparks a lot of the themes that come later in the book. Can you tell us about this story that I, I don't know? And also, did this story spark the idea of writing the book? So I can uh, let me start with the answer to that question. The, the the story was always in the back of my mind. It's been around for a while. Mm. Um, it was, and I'll I'll tell you the story in a moment. It was a story that um, you know a lot of people had looked at inside medicine, you know, as 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 a thing not to do. It was a disaster in the operating room. It was the story of a of a young woman, a young mother of, of two kids under the age of 10, who uh, went into the hospital, to a private hospital in the UK for routine sinus surgery. She was supposed to be out of there in about two hours and back home with her family. And instead, uh, through a series of avoidable mishaps, uh, suffered lack of oxygen for about 20 minutes and ended up with irreversible brain damage and, and her, her husband who was an airline pilot, still is an airline pilot, um, uh, allowed her to die of natural causes uh, a couple of weeks later in the intensive care unit of the adjoining National Health Service or NHS hospital. It was avoidable. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people had looked at this as a cautionary tale. You know, briefly, what, what, the, what, what the woman Elaine Bromley had was a scenario that is is equivalent in aviation to a stall, you know, or or to a complete engine failure uh, at thirty seven thousand feet. Except in this case, it was a failure to be able to pass a breathing tube. You know, she had to be placed under anesthesia for the operation. Often, you're given uh, medications to paralyze you, so that means you're completely dependent on the anesthetist uh, putting an endotracheal tube in or putting a laryngeal mask on so that you can be breathed and putting you on a ventilator. They could do neither. So the anesthesiologist was unable to, to intubate her, place a breathing tube, and was unable to ventilate her. So her oxygen levels, which are supposed to be in the 90s, dropped into the 80s and then the 70s and the 60s. And in fact, they were in the 40s for a good 10 minutes or so, which, which is not compatible with normal brain function. You're you're there's a tick-tock, there's a ticking time bomb going on there that if you don't secure that airway within minutes, she's going to suffer irreversible brain damage, which is what happened. It's a recognized emergency, and there is a treatment for it if all else fails, and that is a tracheostomy. You you put a surgical airway in, you oh, yeah. you you make an incision, you put the endotracheal, you 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 open the area up, you place the endotracheal tube there, and presto, you've saved her life. And and what was striking about the story, which has been taught to anesthesiologists, this is your worst nightmare. You should do simulations on it. You should know exactly what you're going to do when it happens. You should be able to recognize it when it happens. You had one anesthetist who was unable to secure the airway. He was joined by a second anesthetist who was also unable to secure the airway. And eventually the surgeon, the ENT, ear, nose and throat surgeon joined them. And the three of them were sequentially trying to secure the airway. Um, what struck me about that story was that there was a complete and utter absence of teamwork. There was no leader. There were no followers. Uh, and and in, I mean, there was there was actually an absence of teamwork, which I argued in the book, which I argue in the book was a factor in her demise. Uh, you know, a good team leader would have had situational awareness. Uh, a good team leader 
would have noticed what was going on and would have listened to warnings from others who knew what was going on. There were two nurses who went into the operating room. One of them said, we've secured a bed in the ICU, intensive care unit. Um, and and uh, a, a, a leader, somebody who was appointed the leader in this disaster um, would have said, at the very least might've said, what did you see that made, made you say that? Um, but would ask a curious question like, this is a woman who's going home in two hours. Why, why have you secured a bed in the intensive care unit? What do you see that I don't see? Which is what a good leader asks. Uh, and, and, they, and he or she would listen to their followers. Uh, there was another nurse who came in and said, I've brought in the surgical airway. In other words, the tray, the special surgical tray to open up the airway. And, and she was ignored. And, <laughs> and so I, what I wanted to do was use that story and keep coming back to it as a kind of a framing device for the book to, to talk about teamwork and, and to ask the question, could teamwork have saved her life? And I think the answer is yes, it could have, um, you know, you, you know, and, and I work in the emergency department where we have to flip. And I can tell you in the last couple of weeks, three times, three shifts in a row, I've had uh, a disaster or a potential disaster, you know, people with surprising uh, side effects of medications or who came in, in cardiac arrest. And, you know, we're doing a lot of fairly routine stuff during an emergency shift, but, but, you know, when you have to drop tools and run to the resuscitation room, um, it's hard, you know, your, your, your focus is narrowed, you're anxious, you may be stressed, it may be near the end of your shift and you're tired. Well, if you had a team and a team spiritedness, and I explain what that's all about in the book, which we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. then that would take the cognitive load off of you off of everybody in the room, it would it would institute calm and people would start to pull together and they would get better results than if they kind of go flailing on their own as those three doctors did in the case of Elaine Bromley. Well, let, let's jump into that. You do a great job of describing what a team really is and what it's not. Can you talk, tell us about that? Sure. The one of the uh, the burning, you know, I, I like to start with a burning question. You know, I like to start my books with a burning question. And, and the, the question I ask in The Power of Teamwork is, do you work on a team or do you work on a group of individuals? And, and, and the differences couldn't be more stark. A group of individuals um, is, is constantly concerned about their own welfare, which you're supposed to. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But they are unaware of where their job ends and another person's job begins, um, they probably haven't had a hand in developing team goals. They may not even be aware of what the team goals are. And, you know, a lot of them in medicine are implicit. We don't want to kill the patient. Okay, that's that's good. But what else? Uh, it, do, we want, do we want this to be an on-time operation, one that finishes on time? Do we want to make sure that the count of instruments at the end of the operation is perfect so that so that there's no uh, instruments it's still that we've sewn up inside the belly or the chest, you know, but have, have you even articulated them? Is it an environment where a leader of the team uh, knows the superpower of everybody on the team and maneuvers the pieces so that people shine, not so that they're constantly placed into a position where they're, where they're being set up to fail? Um, is it an environment where people offer to help each other? Uh, you know, they see that somebody on the team is now carrying a heavier load than everybody else on the team. I'm going to take some things off their plate so that they can focus on this crisis that they're dealing with and so that they don't feel that they're alone. And that the help might be emotional help. They might be having, a, you know, they might be having a marital crisis or a crisis with their kids. Um, and, and, and not only do you extend help to others when they need it, but you, you receive the help that's offered to you. You don't get defensive about it and say, you know, you know, why are they asking me if I need help? You know, do they think I'm inept? Uh, so you're, and, 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 you know, it's, it's an environment that benefits from everybody's participation, everybody with skin in the game. And, and you're developing something called team cognition, which, which, you know, if you, if you have any kind of complex task, or complex set of operations, a major project that you want to do, 
a team is essential. You have to assemble a team. Otherwise, you're not going to get the best out of everybody. So that's so I've kind of described, you know, if 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 on the other hand, it's every person for themselves. They're only concerned about their individual goals, their promotions, their their awards, you know, their research grants, and they don't really care about anybody else. Um, if they don't know the goals, the team goals, if they don't offer to help and nobody offers to help them when they need the help, if the leader doesn't know their superpowers and kind of stumbles and bumbles through um, and manage and, and, and you know, they're, they're like if, if the team leader knows that 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 there's going to be changes, do they inform the team? Do they gather the team for meetings and say, this is what's coming in six months? Or do they ambush them with a surprise, you know, because they've been, yeah. you know, because they've been told, you know, they've been told, keep this a secret. So it should be whammo. Here's a surprise. You're all going back to work full time next week. Deal with it. Uh, instead of saying, you know, maybe a month or two before I've heard rumblings that we might be going to, to, uh, to full time work or, you know, four fifths full time work, four days a week in the office now instead of being at home. And I want to know what everybody thinks about that. The, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, like a hockey team or a soccer team. You can bring a group of people together, but if they're not working together, you really don't have a team. You're not going to score goals or save, you know, save, um, prevent the other team from scoring. You're just going to have people running around or skating around with, with and- no coordination. Absolutely. And hit, and certainly, you know, sports history is replete with with teams that are greater than the sum of their parts. And and they may not have as many superstars as the next team, but the parts fit together. And 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 it's no accident that most of the team psychology that we know, the, the psychologists who focus on teams began by focusing on sports teams. And uh, and and that's because you really see it writ large like it's a and, and you know, you may have a season. So you've got um, you don't have to pick an artificial time period to and to analyze how this team functions. You've got a season uh, and it might be a miracle season. You know, for instance, the miracle on ice, uh, the U.S. hockey team winning the winning Olympic gold when they weren't supposed to win it. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't have the best players. Cana- you know, there's no question the Russians and the Canadians were better players. But but they had a better team. Yeah, you you touched on something I want to ask about um, personalities uh, on teams. Do they influence a team? Its behavior, how how well it gels, how it might not gel. Sure, they do. Uh, certainly, uh, you you need to have team members like for a team to gel. There has to be you know you know I I think that that. There are several personality characteristics that are essential. You know, one of them is, and probably at the top of the list is empathy. You have to have empathy for, uh, you know, not just just you know empathy for an individual you're talking to in healthcare, a patient, um, you know, for a lawyer, a client, uh, in customer service, but you have to have empathy for everybody else on the team. So you have to imagine what it's like to be them. And, you know, in the in the book, I profile examples of, of people who have off the charts leadership skills. One of them is Trevor Jane, uh, who uh, is a trauma and emergency physician in Prince Edward Island. And he, he's also a reserve uh, officer with Canadian forces. And he goes on overseas missions, medical missions to to, you know, roll three hospitals. And, and he he's exceptionally good at uh, imagining what it's like to be the grunts that he's working with under under his command and and he he knows who needs emotional support he knows you know he learned from from canadian forces that how important it is that that people on his on, under his command have uh, have the best shoes the best boots and also uh make sure that they've paid up their their insurance and that they've got a dental plan uh or or you know that they they've taken care of their bodies and their minds and their souls and their psyche uh, and and you know likewise knows their superpowers. So if you've got somebody who is low on the empathy scale by personality, and, and in my previous book, the, you know, the Power of Kindness, I talk about something called the Dark Triad. The Dark Triad you know, consists of three personality types that that predispose you to low empathy. So they are Machiavellians, 
and that's a personality disorder is somebody who who moves people around as if the ends justify the means as if they don't care what happens to the person as long as it it's good for their goals uh sociopaths uh and uh, uh I, this is great i'm gonna look i'm, I'm missing i'm missing the third one uh, <laughs> narcissists Okay, narcissists. So, so think about Donald Trump. So, narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, that is, and Machiavellians, and and so so you can pick any three of those if you're asking personality. If somebody's too narcissistic, if they think everything revolves around them, if they're the kind of leader who thinks that they're the genius that stirs the drink, you know, the straw that stirs the drink, and the grunts aren't important, well, they're not going to be good at teamwork, and and the people with them will stay with them as long as they get higher salaries and bonuses with this leader but as soon as this leader screws uh, screws up they're going to be they're going to be running for the exits and and you know sociopaths just don't give a darn about about you know they're, they're the kinds of people who like to torture an insect and uh and uh, mm -hmm. just just to see what it's like uh and and think nothing about torturing uh, an employee, a member of their team, before they get fired, they know they're going to get. They know they're going to. They're going to be fired, and they torture them until uh, until the end. And uh, and then, of course, there's Machiavellians who I've already talked about. So yeah, personality plays a very important role in good teamwork. Does a good team need to have introverts and extroverts, or can a team be still successful with all introverts and all extroverts? Um, potentially, the answer is yes. Um, I would not say that that's the case in every example. Um, you know, what you what you what you need to be able to do is figure out what a good team leader and not just a good team. Like it's a good team. A good team leader doesn't answer all the questions. A good team mm. leader asks questions and gathers the wisdom of the team. So so there are things that he or she um, doesn't know until he or she has canvassed the opinions of everybody with a different perspective on the team uh, because they all do different things. So the more complex the task, you know, the more, you know, take an operating room, for example, because I, I use that example several times in the book, you have the anesthesiologist who is responsible for induction, for intubating the patient, keeping them safe, keeping them on a ventilator, and then extubating them and helping them emerge from anesthesia. You've got the surgeons who do the operation, surgical assistant who hands, you know, who who is there to assist and make sure that 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 uh, that the the surgeon can see. Uh, uh, you know, what they're doing. And then you've got the scrub nurses who are there to hand the instruments over to set up the table and to make sure that the count of sponges and, uh, and, and instruments is true. It's, uh, you know, whatever goes into the body comes out of the body. And, uh, and, you know, that's complex work. You've got circulating nurses, you've got other people who are involved, schedulers, people, the maintenance people who keep the machines running, the people who, who clean the, the, the rooms. Well, you know, the skill set of each and every one of those people with those diff complex but different tasks will require some people who are great with detail, others who are leaders, you know, others who are extroverts, others who are empathic with each other. And and it's the job of the leader to fit it all together, to 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 have a better idea, a superior I a grasp of of who does what job well and how to move those pieces together to maximize the the talents of the people that you have that you, that are working under your auspices that's definitely something we've come to the end of our first segment but that is definitely something that i learned in reading the power of teamwork is just how many people really are involved in what i think a lot of people would think is something easy a dot a surgery a, it's a doctor and a nurse there was so much i learned a lot by reading this not just on teamwork but you know, how much bigger sometimes the team is. And it's not just those that you see. Sometimes it's people behind the scenes that are, you know, there's more of them behind yep. the scenes. Absolutely. And, you know, in aviation, they certainly know that. I know, I know we're at the end of this segment. There are many domains where there are some really important unseen people, but a good team leader knows how they all fit together. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Dr. Brian Goldman today, author of The Power of Teamwork, and we will be right back.
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you a business owner, 1099 contractor, part-time employee, or volunteer who needs group health coverage you can actually afford? Do you know a nonprofit who would benefit from unlimited zero-cost funding? How about cost reduction, school safety, mental health wellness, and more? All these and more are fair game on Finding Certainty. If you want more certainty in your own life, you are not alone. Join us each Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Find your own brand of certainty and realize your personal American dream with Finding Certainty, hosted by Patrick Lang. Let's unwrap the certainty experience together. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today, we are talking with Dr. Brian Goldman, the author of The Power of Teamwork, something uh, a lot of us in organizations and uh, our little groups at work and even in our family units uh, really need to pay attention to, I think. There's something in your book you bring up quite a few times here, and it was in the opening story. Is there a way or should we be uh, learning from our mistakes? How can we take those mistakes and turn them into positives? Well, you know, if you've heard of the expression fail forward, um, you know, I, I certainly from, you know, I did a TED talk um, about 11 years ago called Doctors Make Mistakes. Can we talk about that? And it's been viewed by, oh, you know, close to 2 million people on the TED website. And, and, and the point I'm making there is that, uh, you know, if, if we don't learn from mistakes we're doomed to repeat them and and you know we you know certainly i come from a culture in medicine this may not be the same in the corporate world or the organizational world but i can tell you in the world of medicine we have a deep kind of seated shame about mistakes we think we're supposed to be perfect uh we don't like talking about them because we you know there's such an aversion to talking about mistakes that we're terrified that we're going to be shunned if we make it you know if we make a mistake and if we talk about it people get really uncomfortable now that some of that's changing but but the point is that uh we have been slow to recognize what the corporate world has understood uh that you learn from mistakes and aviation has learned from mistakes uh that's what you know what they've done is they've created a no shame no blame no name kind of system for for accounting for errors and and disseminating information about them. And and in fact, these days, experts in aviation have become consultants to the healthcare field. Uh, you know, you've got pilots, former pilots, retired pilots, uh, you know, people like Sully Sullenberger, the guy who uh, landed the, the, the plane on the Hudson River. I had the privilege of interviewing him on White Coat Black Art on my radio show. And and, you know, he says that, uh, you know, aviation has some wonderful teachings for healthcare 
And it's all based on creating a forum where people can talk about mistakes and deal with them in a way that makes the system safer. And so, yeah, it's absolutely essential and it's absolutely essential for teamwork as well. I'm kind of curious with, you talked about some of the personalities in our first segment and sometimes um, there's a reluctance from people on a team who want to share their experiences when there is uh, a mistake, whether it be a small one or a large one. How do you, or any suggestions on how you can get that out of a person so that everyone can benefit from that mistake and you turn that into a positive without making someone feel as though they have made a big, terrible mistake. It's their fault. You know, they're, they're the weak link in the group or the team, sorry. You know, how do, how do you go about managing that? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, you, you, you're asking somebody who comes from a field where we've done it quite badly for, for a long, long time. We had, uh, you know, a, uh, we have a, a mechanism called morbidity and mortality rounds where, where we dissect cases that didn't go well. And, and, you know, the idea is that we learn from our mistakes and we're all very, you know, very high and mighty about, about that. But in fact, you know, culturally in medical culture, uh, morbidity and mortality rounds in the past traditionally were a vehicle for, uh, you know, a surgeon to kind of wear, to, to apologize to, to colleagues for ruining the, the patina of perfection that uh, that physicians and surgeons are supposed to have, you know. I think I think that uh, you know, as, as as I've already said, I think aviation has a better approach to to uh, to reporting errors and 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 dealing with them. But uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, certainly in healthcare, uh, a lot of people feel uncomfortable uh, talking about mistakes. But I think in part, it's because they feel uncomfortable talking about what happened. Now, that is starting to change. Mm. And one of the things that we're doing in healthcare uh, is, is we are doing simulations. And, and, simu- like, and even I can tell you, I have, I have exam stress. That's one of the reasons. That's one of the engines that made me a physician. I'm perfectionistic. And, you know, I don't like being caught out making mistakes and being shown that I've made mistakes. Um uh, but but you know now we do a lot of simulations and that's one of the techniques that help bind, that helps to bind teams together because you get to play out roles and you get to try out things and um, you know uh, if I were running a simulation I would want people to try things I would not want people to demonstrate that they always do the right thing at the right time every time because there's a bias there they're going to study. They're going to memorize stuff. They're going to cram into their short-term memory the stuff that they're supposed to do, and they're going to look and sound perfect uh, until they're not expecting the same emergency, and it happens like eighteen months later, and uh, and they and and they don't do it well. Uh, I would say, if I were running simulations, I would say that I want you to try things. I want you to see what happens when you try things, and I want you to learn. And I want to create an environment where you feel calm and and secure to say what you see uh, as things unfold in the emergency. So so first of all, having that kind of a simulation, and I'm going to talk about what you can do to maximize that kind of uh, situation in a simulation or a real clinical scenario, like a real resuscitation. And then afterwards, have a debrief. And the purpose of the debrief is is is, you know, it could be a hot debrief or a cold debrief. A hot debrief occurs shortly after. And, and you know, we usually start with what, you know, what did we do well? What didn't work? And, you know, what could, you know, what could be better? What are suggestions for the next time this happens? And what you're doing is you're generating a whole, a whole group of suggestions that in the right environment can lead to substantive changes that make things better the next time. Now, the problem that you have talked about, that you have identified is what I want to highlight. A lot of people on teams feel unsafe. They don't feel safe to say what they see. So, for instance, the nurse, you know, in the Bromley case, who came into the operating room and in a still quiet voice said, I brought the surgical airway. Um, that was her way of saying, this is a can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario. She's dying. Somebody notice, please. But she was afraid to say it. Mm-hmm. And there's a language for doing that. 
And there's a way to be encouraged to do that. And I talk about it in the book. Uh, there's a chapter on on visual thinking strategies. And this, you know, this was a system that was developed by a couple of a uh, uh, couple of museum docents, museum researchers, who were trying to develop a system that would that would increase the engagement of lay people as museum goers and art gallery attendees, just to increase their in enjoyment of the experience by increasing their engagement. Instead of having them stand and look at something and, and have no idea what they're supposed to be looking at, uh, instead, you're plunked, you know, a group of you uh, of similar backgrounds, You're, you don't have to be an expert to participate in this, or plunked in front of a work of art, and, and the, the, the facilitator asks you three questions. Question number one, what do you see? Or what do we see here? And, and somebody, you know, with a bit of chutzpah says, I see, you know, I see a couple. Um, and the facilitator says, you see a couple. Um, what more can we find? What are they doing? And somebody else says, you know, I think they're, I think they're embracing one another. And, and the, uh, and, and, and the second question, so there's three questions. The first question is, what do you see? The second question is, what do you see that makes you say that? That's the critical thinking piece. Okay. You think they're embracing. What do you see that makes you say that? Uh, well, their arm positions look like they're hugging each other. Um, uh, and, but then the facility and, and the facilitator is continuing to paraphrase and then ask the third question, what more can we find that? encourages other members of the team or group to to come forward with what they see. Somebody else says, I think they're wrestling with one another. Oh, again, back. Okay, so so uh, somebody else thinks they're wrestling with one another. What do you see that makes you say that? And they answer something about the arm position that makes it look like they're wrestling. And, and over time, they're exploring other things, you know, incidental things that are in the in the image, the sculpture, the, the, the portrait. Uh, they may be looking at the point of view. Uh, are we looking down on them or are we looking across at them? Are they in a bed? Are they are they are they horizontal and we're looking down on them or are they vertical? And and slowly but surely what's happening is that is that everybody is getting a collective team cognition for what's going on. You can take that approach, pluck a group of medical students or or nursing students or physiotherapy students in front of a work of art and do exactly the same thing. And what you're getting is you're getting everybody on the team to to be to develop the courage to feel safe to say what they see. That is utterly crucial in a resuscitation situation, you know, where you've got an emergency, somebody's in a code blue, a cardiac arrest, and you need everybody to be engaged and looking because because one person in that group might be the only one to notice that the oxygen tubing is no longer connected to the supply of oxygen and that's the reason why the oxygen level is dropping precipitously not because there's an airway uh, disaster but because the oxygen needs to be reconnected or uh, they might be noticing something else um you know for instance i had a resuscitation recently of a, a woman who had an anaphylactic reaction to to radio contrast to ct dye it happens and my colleague was uh was ordering you know, agents, you know, medications to raise the blood pressure. These are catecholamines. They're, they're, they, they stimulate, they, they, they increase the tension in the blood vessels to increase the blood pressure. And that's essential to preserve brain and heart and kidney function. But I also remembered that anaphylaxis causes a condition of, of shock, which is called distributive shock. And, and in that condition, all of the blood vessels have opened up too much and whatever fluid they have that's keeping their maintaining their blood pressure in their in their arteries is now leaking out into the rest of their bodies. So you have to pump them full of fluids. Uh, you might have to give them four, five, six, seven liters to to raise their blood pressure to the point that you no longer need those 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 artificial me those medications to artificially raise the blood pressure. So my contribution was I felt safe to say what I saw. And and I I explained it in the middle of the in the middle of the resuscitation, and it was a good suggestion, and it was something that was added. You know, another um, another uh, uh, resuscitation, and and one of my residents said, "Shall I get the tranexamic acid?" It was somebody who was bleeding, uh, and and tranexamic acid is 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 a medication, a powerful medication that clots the blood, and uh, and yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you for suggesting that. And so we ended up giving a maximum dose of that. And, and so you can see that, that 
The critical factor there is that people feel comfortable to say what they see, to not feel that they're one-upping the leader or that they're showing people up mm. or that they're pointing out mistakes because they could be pointing out something that turns the resuscitation around into a better direction. But, but to do that, you need all hands on deck and you need people who feel comfortable to say what they see. And I'm repeating it several times because it's so important. It is. And I think a lot of people don't speak up because they are afraid of leadership, of which you talked about in the first first segment, the good leaders. And Alex, and Alex let me add something to that. I'm talking about yeah. healthcare as if it's the be all and end all. I mean, this, you know, if if that, if if the co-pilot of a certain Korean airliner, you know, the navigator wasn't afraid to speak truth to power and to tell, you know, to tell the to tell the pilot that we're heading towards a mountain, they wouldn't have slammed into the mountain. Uh, that's the Tenerife. Uh, that's the Tenerife disaster, and there were many, many human factors disasters uh, in the 1970s and 80s. These are air disasters that led to something called crew resource management, which was a way of coping with the fact that no one person in an air flight emergency uh, is in possession of all the facts and can see everything all at once. Their focus tends to narrow, and so they need the participation of everybody else with skin in the game. So that includes the pilot the cockpit crew, the cabin crew, the air traffic controllers, the maintenance crew, and yes, even the passengers, because because a passenger might be the first person to notice that there's a funny smell uh, emanating in the cabin or that there's some liquid dripping from one of the engines. And wouldn't the pilot want to know that? Yeah, they would want to know. Mm-hmm. So it's and- in aviation and it's also in business. It's everywhere yeah. that it's important to say what you see. You you talked about the uh, going to the art museum as uh, that would be kind of a fun outing to to do and you know have a look at a painting and get different perspectives on what people see and uh, what they're feeling, but that's not the only way. There's uh, there was a, an example or two in here of something really uh, fun that I don't think people would think of. Yeah, but I think was... you're, you're talking about improv uh, comedy. Yeah just pretending that that you're on stage with a partner and and um you know you can there there there's an exercise there are many exercises but this one is is pretty simple to explain it's called yes and uh as opposed to to yes but and no uh yes and is an exercise an improv uh comedy improv exercise in which you have two people on stage and they are given a scenario, and the more bizarre the scenario, the funnier the scenario, the better, the more absurd. And whatever the scenario, the first person, the first volunteer, the first victim has to riff off of that scenario, has to say something about that scenario. Whatever the first person says, the second person must listen carefully to what the first person is saying and respond as soon as they finish, um, respond with two words, yes which is implicit acceptance of what the other person has said and the word and, which means that they accept what the other person has said and they build upon it. They can't change the subject. They got to go with it. You know, for instance, uh, you know, scenario might be um, the two of you, uh, what, you know, we, you know, we now have the first, you know, interstellar station, on the planet Mars. And the two of you have been assigned to fix the toilets, which are once again on the fritz. (laughs) First person has to go with that and they can talk about weightlessness and, you know, whatever, whatever they want to do. But the idea is, is twofold. First of all, that the first person is actually listening. Sorry. The second person is actually listening to what the first person is saying. And I mention that because, how often have we had this very human experience of thinking that we're listening to other people in a team meeting when all we're doing is just waiting, waiting, waiting patiently for the person who has the floor to pause so that we can jump in with what we've been dying to say for the last 20 minutes. Mm, yeah, That is not listening. That is waiting for your opportunity to jump in, and and that is not, and in fact, an astute team leader might actually say, can we stay on topic? Or what would you like to say about what he's just said or what she's just said? And, you know, hopefully they feel comfortable to say, I wasn't listening. I was just waiting for my turn. And and I, I would be, and, and I'd say, thank you for that observation. 
thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty. Can you hold your thought until uh, until we come back to a moment where 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 we can talk about that, or or gather your thoughts and maybe you want to hear what some of the other people are saying about what that person just said. So what they're doing is they're they're kind of doing visual thinking strategies, but they but listening is really important and then acceptance. Why is this important? Because in medicine we tend to play yes but yes that's a great idea and we tried it last year and it didn't work. Or yes, uh, you know that's an intriguing idea. Um, there are I can quote you five papers that show you it'll never work. Um, that's you know you you understand that yes and facilitates conversation. Yes, but kills conversation. And of course, the worst example is no, which is basically a complete repudiation of what the other person said. And people do it. You know, sometimes leaders will do it in a funny way. They'll make they'll snap. They'll make a snappy joke. They'll say next. Uh, and everybody will laugh. Oh, because nobody ever listens to this person. Yeah, ha ha. Isn't that funny? No, it's terrible because you're missing the wisdom of everybody in the group. You are selectively uh, avoiding hearing from everybody when in fact, you know, whatever idea you have will be better because of everybody's participation. You can almost guarantee that. I, I've been in many, many, many meetings uh, in my lifetime where yes, but is really the, uh, the the focus of the meeting. No matter what gets said, the next yeah. person is always yes, but. The and person- the leader, leader just lets it go on and everybody leaves the meeting wondering oh, why were we even here? Yeah, and, you know, so the, you know, so you're describing a place where where you know a meeting where where good ideas go to die, and and <laughs> you know, really, the person who says yes but is is placing themselves in a hierarchically in a higher position uh, with respect to the person who made the first suggestion. Yes, but is, is condescending. It's a bit rude. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe that gets back to to the personalities of people who are are good with teamwork versus those who aren't, you know, people who are a little bit on the narcissistic side or like putting down others and, and, you know, think that that if if it's a good idea, they would have come up with it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We only have four minutes left, believe it or not. Time is just flying by here. So why don't we jump to our, our, our last thing that I wanted to ask you is. What can leaders and others, not they, they don't have to have a, a, a big title, but what can they start or stop doing right away to help develop maybe the group they're, they're in right now and turning it into a team? Well, I, you know, I think there's several things they can do. Um, you know, one of the, you know, I certainly, the there's nothing wrong with going back to first principles acknowledging you know asking everybody in the group do you do you think we are a group of individuals or a team what could we do better um you know what what how can i help you feel like like you know more of a sense of team spiritedness in what we're doing here and and get beyond you know and and i would ask everybody what does it mean to be on a team and i would use that opportunity to ask questions like you know what should we as you know why are we here you know and 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 ask like and and don't be afraid to 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 make whatever suggestions you have. Are we, you know, are we here to make profits? Are we here to to treat customers right? You know, are we here to 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 have a neat environment? You know, uh, you know, are we here? Is is this a place? Do we want to be a place where where they're really good at retaining staff? Um, is it a place where people help? Is you know when 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 people need help? Is it a place where you feel comfortable asking for help? Is it a place where if, if management tells you there's going to be a brand new initiative or a project, you know, is it a place where your environment, uh, where, where, where your, your perspective is considered important? Um, you know, I think that uh, I think a lot of this comes from leaders. I think a leader um, would do well to get to know better people, everybody on the team and call them in mm-hmm. for individual meetings, get to know them, get to know their likes and dislikes, their personalities. Um, you know, what's going on with their families, how big their families are, how many kids they have, what their hobbies are. You know, I, I'm just throwing out things, but the more they get to know them, the more they get to know what their needs are, their emotional needs, their physical, their their their, their monetary needs and 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 their superpower. Um, you know, what as 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 people have returned to work. 
from working from home, I, I've said, you know, why don't you make a game of it? Why don't you why don't you make it fun? Gather everybody together at work and have, you know, have them put name tags, you know, silly name tags on that say uh, <laughs> that say how my name is, even though they've known each other for years. And, <laughs> and uh, have everybody in the group name somebody else's superpower. So it, instead of self-promotion, it, it I think it resonates better when you have noticed another member of the team's superpower that so-and-so's visionary and this person's really good with customers. And this is a person who everybody on the team gets along with, even when there's conflict in the, in the team. Um, you know, this is a person who uh, has a steel trap for institutional memory, who remembers every rule and knows why the rule was changed and when it was changed. So you're, that's the person you ask uh, when you want to know how to get things done. Uh, you know, the person who knows all the procedures, you know, the person who knows the Hansard of politics, you know, of parliament. That sounds good. Uh, I hope everyone's listening because a lot of the things that you conveyed, I know that the book primarily talks around uh, medicine and that is your, your background, but um, all those principles can definitely be used in the office environment, whether it be government, whether it be a bank, anything. There's so much good information in the book. And so congratulations on it. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Alex, it's been a pleasure. And everyone, uh, again, Dr. Goldman's book, The Power of Teamwork. There's a lot of good information. I recommend it to everybody. Um, it doesn't show on video very much, but this book has got a lot of dog ears in it with uh, different things that cropped up uh, as I was reading going, oh, I like that example. That's interesting. So Congratulations on the book. Thank you for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it. And everyone watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.